The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Apologetics Show number four on member-supported Restoration Radio. My name is Phil Stone, and I'm very pleased to welcome His Lordship, Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. Welcome back to you as usual, my Lord. Thank you. Apologetics is using the text, The Defense of the Catholic Church by Francis X. Doyle, S.J. So if you have a copy, please feel free to follow along. To refresh the memories of our listeners, It's important to recap on what we've discussed so far in the show. Firstly, we discussed religion and its necessity so as to pay homage to God. We then commenced the three-part discussion on the means of knowing the truths of religion, revelation. We've learnt that man is not free to reject a divine supernatural revelation if he knows that it comes from God, and we talked about how to recognise a divine revelation, including the marks of a revelation, most notably miracles and prophecies. Finally, in the last episode, the second show on Revelation, we covered the documents of divine revelation, the Gospels of Saints Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and we covered some biographical notes on those evangelists, the writers of the Gospels. So on to lesson number six. In this show, the last part of the Revelation mini-series, so to speak, we'll finish learning about the Gospels via chapters six, seven and eight of the text. These chapters of the text explain that in order to provide proof of the historical worth of the Gospels, we would proceed in the same way as you would prove the historical worth of any document, that is, that the Gospels are genuine, the authors are trustworthy, and that the Gospels are complete. So if you're following along in the text for our listeners, it starts with Lesson 6 on page 39. So under question uh, 40 and 41, my Lord, firstly, my Lord, Chapter 6 provides the certitude that the Gospels are genuine documents. Can you please unpack this a bit more? How do we know that a document is genuine? Well, first of all, the notion of genuineness uh, means that the book is written, in fact, by the person whose title is at the beginning. Uh, So, uh, for example, you know, some wonder if the works of Shakespeare are genuine if they were not written by Francis Bacon or others. Uh, So, you know, there's a question of genuineness there. Are these really the works of Shakespeare or are they someone else's works? And so the, that, that's what is known by the genuineness of a, of a document. And so here we are concerned about whether these, in fact, are written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Do they come from these authors who lived in the first century AD? Or are they, as the rationalists say, you know, from the third century AD, where the Christian community wrote these things down, uh, after Christ had been idealized. Uh, so that, that's why we have to uh, discuss this. And also, as I said earlier, uh, the, um, uh, or on another show, uh, that 
it's very important to prove this because when you go to someone with the Holy Gospel, you are asking them to alter their lives in a very, very dramatic way. Uh, and in some cases, uh, it might even end in, in the breakup of their families because the non-Catholic spouse might reject the faith and persecute the Catholic or Many, many uh, unfortunate things happen as a result of embracing the faith uh, very often. And uh, you have to be certain that this truly is the revealed doctrine of God. Right. And so the genuineness of the Gospels is, is very, very important. So the book goes so, into uh, the evidence of history and starts to really demonstrate through his, through the evidence, the first part of, uh, of question 41, uh, the evidence of history pointing to the genuineness of the Gospels. Uh, it points out a number of authoritative witnesses to the genuineness of these Gospels. Uh, yes, the, uh, it gives a whole list of people who attest to it in the early church, which is very important. Um, uh, Origen, who was from the middle of the third century, uh, appeals to the traditional consent of the universal church uh, concerning the uh, the authorship of these Gospels. By the way, he was a very, very learned man, a, a great genius, probably on the level of St. Thomas Aquinas. Unfortunately, wow. he fell into a heresy uh, and uh, was sort of fell from favor, but nevertheless, his testimony is very clear and very valuable because he was so intelligent. Uh, if ever there had been a any kind of doubt as to the genuineness of these Gospels, uh, he would have said it. Um, then uh, Tertullian, who died about 220, uh, he also says that John and Matthew recorded the faith as apostles uh, from the apostles. <clears throat> and Luke and Mark uh, recorded the faith from the words of the apostles. So St. John and St. Matthew were actually apostles. St. Luke and St. Mark were those who accompanied the apostles. St. Luke accompanied St. Paul. Uh, St. Luke mm. is also, by tradition, re reputed to be among the 72 who were sent out, one of the disciples of our blessed Lord, but not actually an apostle. And St. Mark is reputed to be the one who's, uh, who uh, fled uh, without a cloak, it's in his gospel uh, in the uh, when our blessed Lord was arrested. So he uh, also, uh, without actually being an apostle, if that is true, he would have been a disciple. Mm. Uh, so uh, in all cases, uh, they would have been eyewitnesses to what they uh, knew. But you know the the testimony concerning Luke and Mark is speculative. It's not absolute, but there is a tradition concerning both of those things. All right, so Tertullian, who again is a very famous uh, early Christian writer, that's what they're called, uh, attests to the, um, uh, the authenticity of these Gospels. Then there's Clement of Alexandria, who died about 217, uh, and he says that the authorship of the Gospels is guaranteed by tradition. And then there's uh, Saint Irenaeus, who was the uh, Bishop of Lyon in France, and he died about 2002. Uh, excuse me, <laughs> 202. Uh, he, very old. Uh, he, was, 
He was a, uh, a disciple of St. Polycarp, who in turn was a disciple of St. John the Evangelist. Wow. So he has a direct line to St. John the Evangelist, and he quotes the Gospels about 400 times and gives quotations uh, as testimony of the apostles and the disciples against the heretics of his age. So uh, that's very, very strong. His testimony is very, very strong. Uh, and he's you know, very early. Uh, Theophilus of Antioch uh, wrote a commentary on these four gospels about the year 170 and says that they were genuine documents. Uh, Tatian, who was a disciple of St. Justin Martyr, St. Justin Martyr is from the middle of the second century, around 150 mm. AD. He also attests to the genuineness of the gospels. And there's St. Justin Martyr himself, uh, and he very often quotes from the documents as genuine. Uh, and Papias, who also flourished about the middle of the second century and was a disciple of the apostle John, or at least a contemporary of the immediate disciples of the apostles, he witnesses to the fact that the gospels are genuine documents. Then there's St. Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle St. John. Uh, he, um, in a letter written about 107 or 108 AD, quotes the Gospels as genuine documents. Then there's St. Ignatius Martyr, who, by the way, was the first to call the church Catholic, at least in, you know, in written record. Right. We have that. He died in 107, so... And he is reputed to be, uh, they say, it's again a tradition, the boy that our Lord uh, took and, and uh, pointed out uh, to the apostles saying, suffer the children, come unto me. Mm. He is reputed to be that boy. But in any case, uh, he certainly knew the apostles and uh, he also testifies to the genuineness of the gospels. Uh, Saint Clement of Rome, uh, who died under Nero, the emperor, in the first century AD, uh, gives uh, also testimony of genuineness. And then there's the author of the Epistle of Barnabas, uh, which is a document which belongs to the first century AD. He also testifies. And then there's the author of the Teaching of the Apostles, uh, which is, belongs to the beginning of the second century if not the first century, and also that adds to the testimony. So there is very, very clear evidence from the early church that these are, in fact, from the apostles uh, or, or uh, the St. Luke and St. Mark, as the case may be. Uh, and there's really no reasonable cause to doubt it. Right. It uh, certainly reinforces. And, and there's a little footnote on page 40 um, by Archbishop Sheehan. And I, I really am almost drawn to the footnotes in this text uh, Doyle selects really excellent little snippets from other authors to drive home the points that he's making. And um, it, it says, the fact that the Gospels were held in veneration and were in practical use all over the church within 100 years of the death of the apostles, and while their memory was still vivid, is a conclusive proof of their genuineness. So it really reinforces that point, um, that point home. Yes. Um, so on to... I might add too, uh, let me add this too, that at the time there were very many false gospels being written, a lot. Yeah. And these are rejected by the early authors as being spurious, uh, 
uh, and whereas the the true ones are quoted and and preserved. So, so onto the importance the, of this testimony. I'm oh, uh, sorry. The go ahead. No, I'm just commenting on the importance of the testimony. Yep. Uh, the people that we mentioned were men of authority. That is, uh, they were learned people. They were just not just uh, ordinary people that could hardly read or write. These were people who had a certain position in society and were renowned. And uh, they, they, that's why they have survived uh, because of, of their uh, learned abilities. Uh, the, the, you know, as, as time went on, those who did not qualify as being worth while to preserve didn't get preserved in the Middle Ages. There's a, uh, the estimate is that we only have 10% of all the Latin literature that was ever written. So right. when you consider Caesar and Cicero and all of the others that we do have, only 10% has survived. Uh, there's 90% that has not survived. So the fact that these people survived is, a, is an indication of their prominence and their learning, uh, which uh, should uh, underline the importance of their testimony. <clears throat> uh, and then there's the testimony of the enemies of the church. The Jews and the pagans were well acquainted with the Gospels. And in their attacks upon Christianity, they quoted these documents. They would never have quoted them if they were not genuine documents. Uh, Celsus, who was a, a physician in the second century, is an example. He's a, he detested Christianity and he wrote many works against it. Mm. Uh, and uh, despite these, uh, this bitterness against the Catholic Church, and despite their investigations of the Catholic Church, uh, <clears throat> the, these enemies of the Church, like Selsun, like Marcion and Valentinian of the second century, and Basilides, uh, who died in the early part of the second century, they accept the Gospels as genuine documents, as really written by the people whom we say wrote them. Uh, and uh, therefore Irenaeus, St. Irenaeus in the second century writes, such agreement exists with regard to the Gospels that the very heretics themselves testify to them. And in fact, each heretic attempts to prove his own doctrine quoting from the Gospels. <laughs> so they considered them to be authoritative even in the second century. That's very, very powerful yes. testimony. You would have thought that... Uh the enemies of the church, if there was any doubt as to the genuineness of these, they would have been pulling them apart uh, from day one. Yes, that would be the first thing you would you would go after. You'd say, you know, these things were written by, by uh, you know, disciples that uh, were, you know, by people we don't even know. Mm. They've given them these fancy names of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because it adds more authority, but we know that they were just written by... Uh, ignorant people who uh, wanted to see the the, the Christian faith uh, be preserved and progress, yeah. uh, uh, and uh, but no, I mean that, that that would be the first thing you would attack. But the fact that they accept the Gospels and even cite them authoritatively means that the Gospels are genuine, even from the the, the mouths of those who hate them. Yeah. <clears throat> G.K. Chesterton, uh, in his usual paradoxical way, points out uh, in a footnote, uh, 
that there are many things in the gospel that nobody's made any particular use of. For instance, the long stretch of silence in the life of our Lord up to the age of 30. This silence, to quote Chesterton, is immense and impressive, but it is not the sort of thing that anyone is likely to invent in order to prove something, and nobody so far has ever tried to prove anything in particular from it. Uh, the ordinary trend of hero worship and myth-making is much more likely to say the precise opposite. Uh, fantastic paradox, uh, proving the genuineness of the Gospels through the gap in our Lord's life between his finding in the temple and his baptism. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I just thought I, I love that because he's picked out the, almost the, um, that gap as, as the proof of, of uh, one of the proofs of the genuineness of these, of these Gospels. Yes. Yes, it's not full of stories about, you know, how, how Christ interacted with his friends on, on, the, on the streets of Nazareth or anything mm. like that. It, it's just eyewitness testimony or uh, testimony gathered from the Blessed Virgin Mary, which would be the case of St. Luke, uh, who mm. talks about the, uh, particularly the infancy. So now on to uh, the second part of um, the genuineness uh, Question, the evidence of the documents themselves. Uh, yes, the in, we call this internal evidence, and uh, they, uh, these documents, <clears throat> it refers to uh, the, uh, how the, the, uh, the circumstances and events are described, and is there an exact knowledge of time, place, and customs, uh, it, it, do they you know, are, it, do they manifest the time in which they were written and the place in which they were written, the circumstances in which they were written? Just as a document, let's say Shakespeare, does that show the language and uh, all of the the circumstances of the 16th century in England or the the 17th century or 18th century? Uh, English uh, of of some of the uh, great English uh, authors. Mm. Uh, do, is it redolent of of that period? Uh, because you know, in, in in our own times, we're speaking English far differently from the way uh, people would would have spoken it three hundred years ago. Uh, certainly, they would be understandable to us and we to them, but. It's different. You would know right away if a work is written in in a you know in the 1600s or in the 21st century. Right. Yes. Uh, and so also the the internal evidence is going to uh, point out the origin uh, with regard to time, place, and circumstances of these gospels. And uh, so. The and in, in fact they do. Is the that's the point that there is nothing in these gospels that is in any way uh, contrary to the time. That they they definitely have all of the characteristics of that first century in Judea, uh, and uh, that you can tell that the authors are familiar with the topography. They are familiar with the Jewish customs. Uh, th- this could not be something made up by non-Jews or even pious Gentiles, uh, these are, and there's are, there are very tiny details that, that show uh, eyewitness testimony, things that, that you would um, never include if you merely had a general knowledge of Christ's life. Mm. Uh, little uh, I mean, conversations that he had, 
um, the uh, little things have happened along the way, uh, little events that, that uh, that's a sign of an eyewitness. Uh, people who are writing from somebody else's testimony uh, do not uh, are not capable of giving very very detailed information. They can only give general information. It would be like if I wrote something about George Washington. I would read in a book about George Washington and um, write a book uh, based on what I have read, but it, it, that would be all different from having spent time with him and having noticed things uh, about him. You see, so they, they contain the the internal evidence of of genuineness, and that is uh, of eyewitness testimony. Um, <clears throat> Uh, also, the book points out that there in the four gospels, three gospels, there is, uh, which were written before the destruction of the temple, that there is no reference to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, yeah. uh, which they certainly would have mentioned if they had been written after 70 AD. Mm. Uh, so that, that's a sign that they were written uh, at the latest in the, in the 60s AD. Um, so uh, that's very important too. St. John wrote his gospel in the 90s AD. Uh, and uh, uh, so, uh, and you know, that's something I think I mentioned in another show. We always think of his writing the Apocalypse at the end of his life. In fact, he didn't. He wrote the Apocalypse in the 60s AD. Mm. And he wrote the, um, the uh, gospels late in life. That's right. Uh, and uh, so... Yes, we mentioned uh, that in the last show, my lord. So that's... Yes, um, he wrote... So, so the, there are only um, prophecies of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the Synoptic Gospels. There is no mention of their having this prophecy having been fulfilled. So, and that points to their genuineness. Right. Well, that um, thanks for that, my lord. My, uh, that covers... Chapter six or lesson six. Um, so, if we go on, you, did you have anything else to add to that uh, that, that chapter? No, that's uh, there, there's you know if you if somebody wanted to get into the this question in detail, there's a lot more to say. But I, I think as far as the scope of our show, those are mm. the main lines of argumentation. But there has been much written on these things, and uh, so. I, but you know, if somebody really wanted more proof or wanted to see all of these things in detail, there's Plenty of books about it. All right, so now we move on to Chapter 7. Uh, the Gospels are trustworthy documents. This chapter poses that an author is trustworthy when we have proof of his knowledge and truthfulness and then makes a number of points over a few pages as to this proof of the trustworthiness of the evangelists. So, my Lord, I'm just going to let you launch right into this chapter. Yes, in order to be that any person be trustworthy, there are two things necessary, and that is that he has to know what he's talking about, so he can't be merely uh, talking about uh, talking through his hat. In other words, uh, he has to uh, be knowledgeable about uh, his subject, and also he has to be truthful. That that he has to be someone who is not telling a lie, but who's telling us the truth. Those two things have to be present in order for us to make an act of faith in what he is saying. So, for example, when we hear on the news that there's been an earthquake someplace, 
We, we believe that there has been an earthquake someplace because they know they have people all over the world who report these things and communications are such today that we could count on those communications. Secondly, we don't think that the media would lie to us about that. Mm. <laughs> they might <laughs> lie to us about many other things, but they <laughs> would not lie started, to us. Lord. Excuse me? Don't get me started on the mainstream media. That'll be right, a rabbit right. hole. It'll take for a while. You know, they, they might be inclined to lie to us about other things. So the But that there's been an earthquake someplace, uh, that, that we, we readily accept that. Uh, so also with regard to the Gospels, do these people who wrote these Gospels uh, know what they're talking about? Mm. Did they see these things or do they have reliable eyewitness testimony concerning these things. Uh, secondly, are they truthful people or are they charlatans? Are, are they people who want to put something over on us to, to deceive us you know, for some reason? Mm. So these are the questions what we have to ask. And now we'll look at the answers. So the first answer is that uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John could have known the truth they narrate facts, usually public facts, that were seen by many people. Uh, uh, and uh, in broad daylight, and repeatedly, like the many miracles. And these facts caused a tremendous upheaval in the Jewish and the Roman worlds. So uh, our blessed Lord is a, is a historical figure uh, who... Uh, appears uh, in Josephus, for example, uh, as as a, a true historical figure, mm. and whose testimony uh, corroborates those of the Gospels about someone who performed many miracles and so forth. He was Jewish, mm. but he was a contemporary uh, of the apostles. He was the Jewish general who, uh, when he saw the Roman army arrive uh, in 69 AD, just threw down his arms, told all of his soldiers to throw down their arms and defected to the Romans and mm. tried to persuade the, his fellow Jews to just give in to the Romans and not resist them because they are irresistible. There's, there's no possible way that we're going to resist this tremendously powerful army. Uh, the Jews had been revolting against uh, uh, the Romans for many decades uh, even after the time of our Lord. And the uh, Romans just got fed up with it and decided to destroy Jerusalem. Mm. And that's, uh, that's when uh, the emperor sent uh, the general Titus to go and perform that really horrid act, um, which he himself was horrified by when he, when he actually did it. But that's a whole other story. Mm. Uh, so the, is that, that Christ existed and that he caused a great deal of upheaval in the Jewish and Roman worlds, so much so that, that the Emperor Constantine, 300 years later, gives them freedom of worship, and that the Emperor Theodosius in 381 will actually make Christianity the religion of the empire, and outlaw paganism, and outlaw Judaism. Mm. This is a real thing. This is not something that is a figment of someone's imagination. Yeah. Uh, and and it has it has uh, it's a gospel that has a lot of power mm. to overturn the state religion of 
of Rome and to overturn Judaism. It's, it's got a lot of power in it, and therefore it must be taken very seriously. Uh, so these, these, uh, these writers of the, gospel, of the Gospels are uh, narrating facts that, in, that were able to be verified by anyone and which had a tremendous effect on the secular world. So that's very important. Mm. Uh, in number 44, they, they, they say that the uh, writers wish to tell the truth. The style is remarkably simple. Uh, it, it is a style that has never been imitated and almost cannot be imitated. Well, of course, it's inspired. But the, there is no uh, bombast or... or uh, everything is so simply stated. It's purely factual, uh, and uh, so it, 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 that simplicity attests to its genuineness. Uh, th there is no attempt to put anything over on you or to to convince you of something by uh, being uh, f by saying something in a fancy way. E even the most simple person can read and understand the Holy Gospels. Uh, it's not like Plato or Aristotle where you have to be an intellectual in order to absorb that. So you haven't got any and flowery rhetoric or, uh, you know, what do they call rhetorical affectations? Sounds uh, similar to something we're experiencing now, my Lord, from the Novus Ordo. Yes, yes, where they issue documents which are practically incomprehensible. They're so long and they're so uh, convoluted mm. that practically no one can understand them. Uh, it's the same thing that the U.S. Congress does when it wants to pass a law. They put out a, a, a book that's 700 pages of fine print. Right. And you, nobody's going to read that. Yeah. It's, it's a form of fallacy. That's known as a form of fallacy is to so uh, uh, weigh down the, the essential message with verbiage that no one either is going to read it or will understand it if they do. And, and uh, so, but the, the message, the essential message is, 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 is communicated. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, they, uh, the, the author uh, points out that the apostles even spoke about their own faults, their own inability to understand our Lord's message, uh, the fact that our Lord reproached them uh, on a number of occasions, uh, that uh, St. Peter denied our Lord. Mm. So this was not a whitewash of, of these apostles by any means at all. Mm. <laughs> they were, uh, it's quite mortifying for them when you read the Holy Gospel that, that our Lord rebukes them a number of times for not understanding him. Mm. You still don't understand? You, you, you still can't get it through your heads? You know, he said things like that to them a number of times. Mm. Uh, and uh, their, their lack of credulity to believe in the resurrection. So it is a narrative of, the f in many cases, uh, uh, not only of the, I mean, primarily of the glory of Christ and his divinity, but also of the failure of the apostles. Right. The, the apostles don't start to look good <laughs> until the acts of the apostles after, they, after the Holy Ghost has descended upon them. But in, in the Holy Gospels, uh, they don't come off well. 
they, they really don't. Uh, they, they're, they're dull to what they should be understanding in right. most cases. And, and even the um, apparently uh, disgraceful arrest, trial and death of, of our Lord, um, you know, that if someone wanted to make this up as something very, um, very good, um, mm-hmm. I think you'd be inclined to not put that in. Yes, yes, uh, that, that our Lord was crucified. Uh, it, it's the same thing as being hanged, I think, in mm. modern times, or the electric chair, or being gassed. Uh, the, the cross was something that was so horrible in, in Roman times that it could not be done to a Roman citizen. It was only left for slaves and non-citizens. It was the, the worst form of Roman execution. Mm. And so to to be crucified, to mention that he was crucified uh, to uh, the Gentile world and the Roman world, it's just incredible. As a matter of fact, it was, it was you know, I mean, the fact that they would include that, uh, that this is, we are asking you to believe in this person who is Jewish and who was crucified as a criminal by both the Jews and the Romans. Yes. Uh, so the fact that he was Jewish for the Roman people would not have been very pleasing because the the Romans considered the Jews and their their province Palestine to be uh, or Judea at the time uh, to be something uh, odious. Uh, they did not like the Jews and and they they did not like their province. So the Jews were always always a problem to them. That's why they they repressed them on a number of occasions. So the so and not only was this person a Jew, but he was also found guilty by his fellow Jews and by the Roman authorities and crucified by the Roman authorities. Mm. And so it's so disgraceful that was that the church did not use the sign of the cross until after Constantine. It was uh, Constantine who, uh, permitted the Catholic Church to have freedom in the empire, and he did away with crucifixion because precisely our blessed Lord was crucified, mm. and he did not want that ever to be seen again as a as a an instrument of execution. So for nearly three hundred years, three hundred years—that's a long time. Yeah. The the Catholic Church would not use the cross; it used the fish and other. Uh, symbols to indicate uh, the true faith, but never use the cross until the 4th century A.D. Uh, That's how disgraceful it was to Romans looking upon it. So if they had some ulterior motive to promote themselves or to promote Christ as some sort of a great wonder worker who was, uh, you know, that all should follow without reserve uh, and and as if you know he had never uh, been considered to have done something wrong and that he was popular with everybody if they had wanted to present him like that they would never have put in the very detailed narration of his his condemnation and crucifixion mm. uh it, it just would have not fit <laughs> if you're trying to yeah, absolutely right I mean, imagine if, you know, if the history books contained all sorts of nasty things about George Washington, <laughs> that, that he was arrested, uh, he was condemned and put to death. And, you know, it, it's, uh, 
you know, it doesn't say too much for the person that you're trying to extol. That's right. And uh, so that, that's... Um, so going to the next paragraph, their veracity is evident from their agreement on the facts. They were writing independent one of the other. So they were not sitting around the same room writing these things. They were in different places. They were in, uh, they were in different circumstances. And uh, they were not talking to each other at the time. Uh, they were not communicating with each other because they were all dispersed all over the empire and even beyond the empire. Right. And uh, so the, the fact that they uh, come together in details and, and in the um, events of our Lord's life is very, very indicative of genuineness and veracity, mm. that they are all saying the same thing. Uh, and even in the little areas where they might differ, that, that difference uh, proves the fact that they were not copying one from the other. Just as if there is a car accident and you talk to four different people, you're going to get essentially the same story, but it's going to be a little different here, there, and the other place. And, and so that's the, the case here. You have essentially the same story with slight variations here, there, and the other place, which are all able to be reconciled. Uh, but, uh, you know, you, you, uh, it's just uh, narrated in a slightly different way, that's all. So yeah. they're not copying one from another. It's too there imperfect no to be copy a... copy-paste. Yeah, I was going to say it's too imperfect to, too imperfect to be a uh, conspiracy because it would have been um, divided between the different writers... You know, scientifically yes, arranged, yes. chronological. Yes, and they would have said, "Well, you know, we'll we'll put out this uh, this gospel under different names in different parts of the world, and it will be uh, exactly the same." So that would have been a conspiracy. Yeah. But no, they they are writing about the same things in different parts of the world, different times, different circumstances, different languages, and they they all say the same. So, uh, going to number 46, the veracity of the, uh, of the evangelists uh, is attested to by the assurance with which they narrate the facts. Their enemies, the Jews, could have easily proved that the writers were liars if, in fact, they were narrating false things because the facts that they related were public and of great importance and of the strangest character. So they were public, everybody knew that. He was followed around by crowds. So everyone knew of all of these things. They were of great importance because, as we said, uh, Christianity jolted the Jewish world and jolted the Roman world. And they were of the strangest character, the performance of miracles, Christ rising from the dead, Christ's prophecies, these were not, you know, the story of a military leader like Julius Caesar or something. Uh, this is, these are stories about unusual things, very unusual things. And uh, the, uh, the Jews knew whether these things had occurred or not. And uh, they would have attacked the writers as having imagined these things if they had not really existed, if, if the 
if these events had not really existed and had not really taken place. Right. Um, and that would have destroyed the the tiny uh, Christian church very early on if the Jews had attacked the veracity uh, and accuracy of what these people were saying. Mm. So, but that never happened. Uh, and uh, they, they, the Jews never um, challenged the, the, the deeds and the, the events of Christ's life. And number 47 is these writings converted many contemporaries and uh, even the contemporaries of Christ to believe in him. Uh, mm. and, and this was very difficult because the common... Jewish idea of the Messiah at the time was one who would essentially replace Solomon, who would throw off the Roman yoke and who would bring glory to Israel and restore the empire of Solomon and all sorts of things even beyond Solomon, who, you know, who would, the, the literature leading up to the time of Christ spoke of fantastic things that the Messiah would do, all sorts of worldly glory, uh, you know, how everything would grow beautifully and you wouldn't have to till the soil and you know, things like, you know, sorts mm. of, uh, sort of wild uh, imaginings. And uh, so that they were expecting a, a very worldly Messiah. That's the precise reason why our blessed Lord was crucified is that they rejected the non-worldly uh, Messiah. And uh, so, uh, so the, uh, the, the Gospels are, again, uh, they prove their own genuineness by the fact that uh, they, uh, they necessitated personal obligations uh, with this gravest danger, danger to your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the apostles had to hide in the upper room for fear of the Jews, uh, as they awaited the uh, Holy Ghost. And after they received the Holy Ghost, they were one by one put to death over the next 30 years uh, by the Jews, uh, or at the instigation of Jews. They, uh, St. Paul had to defend himself against the Jews who rode up, rose up against him, and also against Gentiles. Who, uh, it, was, it was a death sentence in many cases to become a, a Catholic mm. in those times. And who would do this for, for documents that are even dubious? Yeah. <laughs> Why are we risking our lives for, for documents that, that are even dubious if we're in doubt about them? No, the, the, you would risk your life for something that is absolutely genuine and supernatural. Yeah. And, and uh, so, you know, the, the whole... The whole outcome of the Christian era attests to the fact that these are genuine documents. Uh, so, uh, so again, there's no reason to to in any way call them into question. Yeah. Um, so, uh, then in number forty-eight, the uh, it says that the evangelists had no reason, no motive to lie because there was no benefit for them. <laughs> they all ended up badly. They all died 
violent deaths except for St. John, and even he was lowered into the boiling oil at the Latin Gate. We just had that feast. And, excuse me, and uh, uh, so, you know, they got no money from it. They all lived lives of poverty. They had to leave their wives and family. Uh, they they were considered to be just the you know uh, people who were agitators and and wrong and and uh, against the either the Roman gods or against Judaism they were against the the entire religious establishment by the gospel that they were preaching mm. I mean they got nothing from this they <laughs> there's just no motive. Not even vainglory. Uh, in any crime, there has to be a motive. That's the first thing, or one of the first things that the police look at. What What is the motive? If somebody gets murdered, what you know? If there's no motive, it's it's a sign of innocence. You know, he has no reason to want to murder somebody. So also, what was the the good that they got from writing these supposedly false gospels? Yeah, uh, none at all is the answer, and to the contrary, a lot of bad. Uh, so. Right. Uh, <laughs> Um, the um, and number forty nine says, even if they had wished to falsify, the evangelists could not have falsified the facts. And the reason why is that the gospels contain a doctrine both speculative and practical, and so sublime that no Plato or Socrates or Aristotle could have conceived it much less the men who wrote the Gospels. Mm. So the, uh, the, uh, the, it is impossible to assign to these relatively uneducated men, I mean, they're fishermen or publicans, I mean, these are not great Greek scholars like Plato or Aristotle, to write these magnificent things that had never been heard in the history of the earth. Uh, we take for granted, for example, that we should be charitable to our neighbor because it's the gospel. Right. But that was unheard of in the in the Roman times, that you should be charitable to somebody. You should strike them down as you can. You should uh, you know, be selfish and, and uh, treat your slaves as practically as animals. Uh, 80% of the Roman world was slave. And so they had no use for, for charity. The idea of uh, the idea of treating someone, even a lowly person, with charity, and as an object of God's love, uh, even if you're a very highly placed person, that everyone in that sense is equal. That we are all loved by God, and we are all called by God to eternal salvation. That was something totally new to the ancient world. Right. And sublime. No one had ever said this. Uh, you can go through all of the philosophers of Greece and Rome. Uh, you don't come anywhere near the sublimity of the Gospels. So it, it, they, it, it's not in them to make up this stuff. Uh, that, that's that's the point of number forty nine. That's um, that's what did it for me. The <clears throat> the fact that one person couldn't have uh, imagined. Uh, what they wrote could not have. It's impossible for one person to even come up with this, let alone four people independently. Yes, the Sermon on the Mount. Right. The 
there's nothing that comes close to the wisdom of the Sermon on the Mount in any of classical literature. Nothing that comes, comes even slightly close to it. It's, it's uh, and, and many other doctrines that are contained in, in sacred scripture. Uh, that has been always their, their attraction to people of goodwill, let's say. Uh, people who want to love God the way he ought to be loved. And, and it, there, there is something about reading the Holy Gospel that, that is very attractive mm. to those who love the truth. And, and before you even enter into any of these questions of genuineness, the, the, you sense something supernatural about these writings. That yeah. this, is, this is definitely something that does not come out of the mind of a human being. In yes. the sense that these are, these are doctrines that we've never heard of before and, and which elevate man uh, a great deal. Um, and uh, in number 50, uh, another argument is that the messiahs that they portray is not according to the Jewish expectation. So they're not um, uh, presenting someone who will be popular to their Jewish readers. As we know, our mm. Lord was crucified because he was not according to the Jewish expectation. And, and so, you know, there's no motive there. There's, there's no gain there. Um, the, the, it's, the book says, the Messiah of the evangelists is poor, humble, great-hearted, affectionate, the consoler of sinners, a severe critic of the Jewish external observances, and a teacher who proclaimed and insisted upon the true spirit of the law, meaning the Mosaic law. Mm. Uh, and so uh, he, he totally disappointed those who were expecting the, the, the great restorer of Solomon's Israel terribly. Mm. And uh, they wanted a, a worldly Messiah. So again, there is no motive of, of falsehood. There's no, uh, everything runs against them. All of the facts that they, that they uh, put in their, their holy gospels uh, were, were irritating to those around them and, and, and gain nothing for that. So that's another motive to say that these are genuine and true. Mm. Not to mention the evangelist uh, could have possibly imagined uh, such a character as, as our Lord. You know, yes, uh, this, uh, someone that, that went against all of the expectations of Israel. Uh, and uh, someone who, on the one hand, said he was God, but on the other hand, was extremely humble and did not even have a, a place to live in. Uh, he, uh, he was absolutely poor, absolutely chaste. Yeah. Uh, how do you come up with that from your head in a world that doesn't know any of these things? In a Jewish world that's expecting a man on a horse yeah, uh, not in shining armor. So, yeah, you know it's. Uh, um, I like the footnote, my lord, on um, on page forty nine uh, by J J uh, Russo. It describes the nature of Christ as he's described in the Gospels, and he quote, "Where is the man? Where is the philosopher who knows how to act, suffer, and die without ostentation? If someone supposes that the gospel is all made up, he says that that is to cast aside the difficulty without destroying it." 
it would be more inconceivable that several men in perfect accord had fashioned this book than that one alone has furnished the subject. He goes on to say that the gospel has in truth characters so grand, so perfectly inimitable that the inventor of them would be more astonishing than the hero if it were made up. Mm -hmm. Yes, very true. You you, you couldn't make our Lord up. No, that's right. Um, so in number 51, he says, it is another remarkable argument for the sincerity and veracity of the evangelists that different adversaries, after unremitting labors, undertaken oftentimes with a distinct prejudice at the, outs- prejudice at the outset to prove the gospel spurious and untrustworthy, have never been able to point out even the sign of a lie or a fraud or one error in these documents. Yeah. So all the rationalists, all the people who have taken these, these documents apart for, dec- for centuries cannot find a single fraud or error in them. Um, <clears throat> and number 52, as we said before, that the Christian religion, which is founded on these Gospels, changed the whole face of the earth. Right. by the truth, virtue, and holiness of its doctrines. So, again, remember St. Peter arriving in Rome, if we can consider the, the Roman Forum mm. in all of its glory and, and full of people and the marketplace and senators and so forth. Arriving there in, let's say, you know, the 40s AD, and he is a Jewish fisherman who... You know, apart from the gift of tongues, doesn't know Latin, doesn't know anything about Roman customs or laws or anything. He is a Jew that is going to preach a gospel to these people who are addicted to unbelievable debauchery and cruelty. Mm. Just the indescribable debauchery and cruelty preach a gospel that they must reject their state gods who, uh, who supposedly protect Rome from its enemies, reject them, get rid of them, yeah. and then believe in a crucified Jew who claimed that he was the true God and that they have to give up their debauchery in addition to giving up their state gods, the, the, their debauchery and their cruelty and they have to lead a life of humility, of charity, uh, kindness to their neighbor, uh, and uh, all of the other great Christian virtues. Mm. Just think about that. I mean, how, how, are, how is any human power going to overturn such a, 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 an empire religiously? No, without and and it did. I mean, it's very yeah. easy to go down religiously it's not easy to come up and the 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 apostles and the evangelists are telling the, the pagan world not only do you have to come up but you have to come up to the highest possible point you have to climb mount everest religiously and and from the point of view of virtue and, and belief mm. this is <laughs> How can you assign that to fraud and, and lack of veracity and lack of genuineness? Mm. How did that happen? Um, so, uh, 
Uh, and in num number 53, it says, St. Augustine calls it criminal audacity to question the historical truth of the Gospels. He says that worshipers of idols, quote, who hated the very name of Christ, unquote, never dared to speak thus. Mm. Now he's writing in the late 4th century, early 5th century. Uh, that is very important testimony. He was a great intellectual. He knows what he's talking about. Uh, he was uh, very acquainted with Latin literature. Uh, he, he taught it. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he's a great authority for what he's saying, mm. that this was never challenged even by those who hated the very name of Christ. And that wraps up uh, that chapter, lesson number seven, very well, my Lord. So um, we would like to remind you that you're listening to Apologetics on member-supported Restoration Radio. I am your host, Phil Stone, and I'm joined by His Lordship Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. And today we've been discussing the Gospels in that they are genuine and trustworthy documents. Now we come to lesson eight. The Gospels are complete documents to round out the discussion on Revelation and the documents of divine revelation. So my Lord, on to question 54. When is a historical document complete, entire and uncorrupted? Uh, it means that it has not been changed in its main parts. Uh, for example, the Declaration of Independence would not be complete if someone tampered with it, subtracted or added whole paragraphs or even small phrases. So it has to, it means that the document has to be what emerged from the pen of the person who wrote it and has not been subject to alterations or tampering. And so that's the question, is there anything that is, that is uh, added here or, or subtracted and so forth? Um, uh, so the, um, the books in number 55 were widely disseminated and translated into many languages and read in public and private. So this was... Uh, something that went all over the empire, and don't forget there was no internet or anything like that. These mm -hmm. were books that were copied and sent all over the empire, the Roman Empire, and were well known. They were read in, in, in places of worship. They were well known everywhere and in different languages. And uh, so everyone was familiar with all of these Gospels. Uh, and And... So familiar, in fact, that if there had been any change in them, they would have been detected and condemned. Yeah. Uh, we see St. Paul warning the Galatians to reject anybody that comes with a different gospel. And by that, he did not mean a written gospel, but he meant a, 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 the gospel message. But the same would have been true if somebody had uh, altered these texts, uh, which come up to us uh, in quotations uh, later, uh, you know, as the fathers quote them, they're always the same. They're always substantially the same. Uh, the, there is no variation. Uh, there is no uh, any kind of substantial difference in the quotation of these by fathers and early writers who were s spread all over the empire, mm. from Egypt to, to, uh, to Constantinople to... Uh, France to Spain and, and, and Italy and North Africa, 
uh, all of these documents come out always the same. Mm. Uh, so, uh, and, and the author gives the example that if someone tried to change the words of the Constitution, the, the document is so well known that everyone would be up in arms and say, well, this is, this is not what the Constitution says. Uh, and and that this is a distortion of the Constitution, uh, this is or this is a subtraction from the Constitution, mm. so uh, which would of course would be true, because the document is so well known. Um, <clears throat> so that principle is now uh, established. In number fifty six, he says there is overpowering evidence in the writings of the fathers of the Church uh, that. Uh, he says, for in explaining these writings to the people and in discussing the correct interpretations, these teachers quoted the text which they were expounding and practically the whole New Testament is preserved in their voluminous writings. So just from the quotes of all of these people writing about the, the Christian religion, uh, we see practically all of the Gospels, practically yeah. every text of these Gospels, uh, and uh, the, uh, they all quote them substantially in the same way. Uh, he says that the wording here and there might differ from the wording of the original, but these are merely accidental changes. Just as in a sermon, for example, a priest, and I do it many times myself, will paraphrase what the Gospel says. Uh, I probably have done it even in this in this show. You you paraphrase, but I say essentially the same thing as what the gospel says, uh, and so they they are capable of paraphrasing. Don't forget that a book at that time was a very rare thing, and a lot of these people were going from memory. Mm. That their memories were so good at that time and so well trained that they could read something once and absorb it. And they were going from memory on, on these. And also that, you know, as, as it was translated into various languages, you get slight variations in readings, just as you do from French to Italian to English, you know, in the Gospels. Slight variations, but they're all essentially the same. Yes. So, and that also attests to it that it was not some sort of big conspiracy or one document that was <laughs> sent around to everybody, mm. but that it was a... Uh, a copied document that was used universally throughout the whole church in, in the whole empire. And uh, that could not happen unless these documents were complete. Mm. Uh, if there were a complete and accurate, there would have been a, 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 a complaint if they were not, if something had been subtracted or something added, or if there was an inaccuracy. Uh, and as I said, the Catholic Church was very careful to reject the apocryphal Gospels, which were very numerous, that were written the Gospel of St. Thomas and all. Those were rejected. You should see the list of the false Gospels. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It, it shows that the, the, the jealousy with which the church preserved the true gospels. Mm. So then in number 57, uh, he gives the, the history of the, uh, the, of the manuscripts. And I don't know if we want to necessarily go through this uh, in, in this show, but uh, we can go through the main points. He says there are three families of manuscripts. 
uh, and they are the Western, the Neutral, and the Alexandrian. And then he mentions a fourth, the Syriac, but, which is a, a translation, but since it depends on the other three, uh, it is omitted as a special group. Um, the Neutral and Western families do not depend on one another. So, uh, and these three families of manuscripts take us back to the fourth century. Uh, so that means the 300s. The neutral and western families are independent of each other. The three families contain the Gospels without any substantial changes. Mm. Uh, and th what we see in these 4th century manuscripts are what you see in your Bible that you pick up, yeah. your New Testament. Uh, and as we have them today, so they existed in the Gospels known in the 4th century. Uh, don't forget, the 4th century is, is when the Church received the ability to function publicly. So a lot of the testimony comes from that century, the, the fact that they were all written down and preserved from that century. Uh, there are what we call, before that time, papyri, that is, fragments of Gospels, uh, pages out of this and that, uh, and a lot of papyri, uh, uh, and uh, they all correspond to what we know as the Gospels. Uh, and uh, there are no omissions, no additions, no alterations. Uh, mm. slight different, slightly different readings here, there, and the other place. But, uh, and, you know, that was also... The poor copyists always get blamed, and, and rightly so. <laughs> but you feel sorry for them because you know, people had to... There were no printing presses, and they had to copy these things... And Greek has a lot of little marks in it. And, uh, it, you know, one false move, and you could say something different in Greek. So these people were probably moving along quite quickly, and here, there, and the other place, they, they forget a little mark, and you have a different reading. Yeah. A, a famous case of that is uh, in, um, in the Gloria, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of good will. Now, that is the correct reading. Yeah. The Protestant reading, which is incorrect, is uh, uh, glory to God in the highest and on earth uh, peace, goodwill toward men. The reason why those two are different is because of two different manuscripts in which the simple letter S was left out at the end of the word, of the word uh, eudokia, which means the uh, um, uh, uh, um, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men of goodwill. Uh, the, uh, the, the of goodwill uh, is in the genitive case, which means of goodwill, mm. in the Catholic version and in the preferred um, manuscript. But in the other manuscript, it is just eudokia, which means goodwill. And the only way to translate it is goodwill toward men. Mm. <laughs> so you'd have to know a little Greek to understand that. But the point is that the, the omission of the S changed the way that you would translate it. And it means that some poor uh, copyist that perhaps didn't feel good that day left the S off. It's a very, very slight mark, the final S in Greek. And so much so that St. John Chrysostom had before him the Protestant version. <laughs> wow. if you, if he, he quotes the, that verse in the way the Protestants took it. 
Not that he was Protestant, but in other words, his manuscript was the one that the Protestants accepted. Mm. But in later research, even the Protestants admit that the Catholic version to men of goodwill is the preferred uh, manuscript. So that that's that's uh, you know just a point. To, there's some variation in these manuscripts, but they are essentially the same. I'm very glad you're uh, talking about this, my lord, because I must admit when we start looking at the technical um, proofs of the completeness of the Gospels by comparing with the manuscripts, it's sort of like, wow, uh, um, my head was about to explode, I think. <laughs> yes. Well, that's why I don't want to go into it too deeply. It might bore some people, but uh, I would suggest, you know, if they're interested that they could uh, read about these things. The the uh, um, And so... Uh, now that's now this is an important point for Protestants too because they do not go back any f- further than the fourth century A.D. Mm, mm. They don't have Bibles that come from the first century A.D. No. <laughs> the the first time that you have a Bible or you know a, a collection of books is from the fourth century A.D. Mm-hmm. So where do they get the authenticity of their books, except from the fact that the Catholic Church preserved them, the fact that the Catholic Church rejected the many, many false gospels and preserved these gospels in their, in their uh, churches, in reading them in, in, in church, and in the, the early Christian writers who quote them. Right. You know, there's no evidence of a Protestant sect in the early church, it just doesn't exist of people picking up Bibles, reading them, and deciding what they think about them. And of preachers who don't say mass, who just preach the gospel, there's no evidence of that in the early church. There's no evidence of that kind of Christianity existing. The first time we see that is in 1517. So they have to look to the Catholic Church for the origin, for their very Bibles, which they cite against the Catholic Church. Yeah, the irony of that. Uh, You know, it doesn't make any sense. You're you're taking something that is is the product of the Church's own preservation and authority. The Church decided that these are the four Gospels based on the fact that they were truly written by these people. Mm that they were true, and, and that the others were all false. And so the, the church rejected all of the false gospels. How do the Protestants know that the other gospels are not true gospels? All of those apocryphal gospels that the church rejected. Why, why do the Protestants reject them? Except that the church rejected them. Mm. So, you know, they, they, they really have a problem with that. Uh, and uh, so they cannot use the same arguments that we do. So, uh, and then in 58, uh, it says there are ancient translations that go back before the 4th century. There's the Coptic translation, that's Egypt, uh, and that belongs to the 2nd or beginning of the 3rd century. There's the Syriac translation, and that was published at Edessa in the middle of the 2nd century. There's the Old Latin translation, which belongs to the year 150, yeah. And what we have today is the Latin Vulgate, which was done in the late 4th century by St. Jerome. 
So there was a, a, an earlier Latin translation that was in common use before St. Jerome. And uh, the, uh, as a matter of fact, there's an interesting story about that. They rejected his preferred translation of the Psalms because it did not conform to the one that they knew, which dated from the year 150. So he came in in the late 300s with a new version of the Psalms. They didn't like it. So he had to go back and redo it in such a way that it matched better what they knew, and they finally accepted that. Because people would commonly recite the Psalms in in church. Um, So... um, so it says in the book, comparing the Gospels as we have them today with the Gospels as they are preserved in these translations, which finally lead us back to the year 150, we find that there is no substantial change. Therefore, conclusion, the Gospels as we have them today are the same as the Gospels known in the year 150. That's very powerful. So I'm, I'm tempted to say, but wait, there's more. We can go back even further from the year 150 in Paragraph 59. Yes, the, from the uh, quotations of the early fathers and apologists. Uh, and uh, there are, I won't go through all the quotations, but there are many, many quotations from, uh, from the early times before the fourth century. Mm. Um, and so, um, the, and even before the year 150. So uh, that attests as well to the genuineness uh, of these Gospels, the, the authority of the Gospels, the integrity of the Gospels. Um, and uh, it, it is uh, just one more reason why we should trust these Gospels. <clears throat> For those of our listeners that are um, into that the technical notion of, of, of the proof of the Gospels are complete, the amount of times that, um, that some of these uh, early fathers and apologists quoted the Gospels is just uh, astounding. And so that just yes. really underlines the, the completeness of them. Completeness and everything else we've been talking about today, their genuineness, their authority, the, the fact that they came from the apostles, that they were eyewitness testimonies, they would have, they would have no worth if they were not those things, all of those things. Mm. As if they were if not genuine, integral uh, scriptures. And, and considered inspired, they would have no worth. They would not have survived. They, they would not have survived time. They would not have been preserved. Mm. Uh, these things were considered sacred and, and unalterable. And that's why they were preserved. And that's why we do have the, the manuscripts. Uh, and that's why we don't have the Gospel of St. Thomas. <clears throat> mm. I mean, yes, you know, if you really look around for it, you can find it. But it's not, <laughs> it is a very obscure thing. You can find passages from, from this apocryphal gospel and that apos- apocryphal gospel here, there, and the other place, but nobody ever paid much attention to them except the heretics. So number 60, skipping to number 60, were the uh, gospels tampered with, corrupted between the time they were written and the year 100? Uh, now it is true that we have no manuscripts beginning with uh, belonging to the apostolic age. So there's no, we do not have what Saint John, for example, put to paper. Uh, we don't have that paper and ink uh, manuscript. Uh, be, but it is not necessary to have them because the fathers of that age 
and their successors were connected immediately or immediately with the apostles themselves. And they took care that any teaching not clearly proved to the rest of the uh, to to rest on the words of the apostles should be rejected. Mm -hmm. See, so <laughs> the they were very careful about preserving Catholic doctrine, and they would reject anything that was not in keeping with the gospels that they knew. So that that is a uh, further testimony that nothing was corrupted between. Uh, the year, say, 50 and 100. Um, <clears throat> well, that did it for so me. He that makes the kind of wrapped a nice little uh, bow around it and um, and really underlined uh, the point that this, this chapter is making. Yes, he says, Therefore, from this manuscript evidence, we are face to face with the marvelous conclusion that the Gospels as we have them today are substantially the same as the Gospels which left the hands of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Very important. We could almost end the show right there, my Lord, but um, there is a few more parts of the, of the chapter, um, and that's a comparison of this uh, evidence with the evidence in favour of the classic texts. Yes, uh, you know, Julius Caesar, Sophocles, uh, all of these um, great... Uh, historians and writers and writers of plays, poets and so forth, uh, we have texts. Uh, yet, if you look at this list, Aeschylus, who was a, a, a Greek playwright of the 5th century BC, we have 50 manuscripts only, and they're all incomplete. Uh, Sophocles, uh, we have 100 manuscripts, but only seven are good. Catullus, uh, of Catullus we have three manuscripts, all copied from a 14th century document. Mm. Uh, that He's a, a Roman author, an uh, early Roman author. Uh, Euripides, also a Greek playwright. Cicero, the great Roman orator. Virgil, the great Roman poet, who all of whom lived shortly before Christ. Uh, there are several hundred manuscripts, uh, but the best authority uh, for Euripides is a manuscript that is 1,600 years later than the author. Mm. And for Sophocles, Aeschylus, and Aristophanes, and Thucydides, all of these are Greeks, uh, they, their manuscripts date from 1,400 years later than the author's. Because a lot of these things were preserved by the, the Greeks in Constantinople. Mm. And uh, so, and he goes on, I won't mention all of them, but that, we place, uh, you know, we consider them to be genuine documents. We we do not call into question their authenticity. Uh, there are they are studied. Uh, there is no doubt about them, uh, and uh, yet uh, they their manuscript evidence is is nowhere near the uh, the strength of the manuscript evidence for the Gospels. Now somebody could come back and say, well, you know. It doesn't matter whether I'm reading Cicero or not. It doesn't matter whether it's complete or not. I don't have to change my life to read Cicero, but I do have to change my life if I read St. John. Yeah. And uh, the answer is, yes, you're right. Uh, however, uh, that this, the same rules uh, apply to, to genuineness and completeness. Mm. Uh, that the, that, and, and the secondly... I would say that the 
genuineness and completeness and authenticity of the Gospels is far, far greater than that of the classical authors, uh, which, which, which are not called into doubt in any way. Mm. So, um, well, that's a that brings us back to the fact that it is divine revelation in the gospel contained in the Gospels, because uh, um, God Almighty would not have um, relied on the the kind of strength of evidence like such as the classic texts. He he would have he's gone the extra mile, so to speak, to prove the you know to to maintain the the the, um, the faithfulness um, to the 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 evidence of the gospels being complete, genuine, and trustworthy. Yes, yes, and then he has a final question on the synoptic problem that that in the three first three gospels, which are called the synoptics because they narrate. In most cases, the same incidents. There is a certain amount of difference in their in their presentation, and so his question is: How do we explain the similarities and dissimilarities in the first three gospels in argument, arrangement of material and expression? So the the fact that there are similarities is that the answer to that question is that they they come from a common source. So they they come from eyewitness testimony. Uh, of the apostles and the uh, evangelical writers, uh, and so therefore that that's the reason why they're they're the same. The reason why they are slightly different is because uh, there are differences in style, there are uh, differences in purpose. Uh, uh, the the Saint John, well, Saint John is not a synoptic, but the. Uh, St. Luke had a slightly different purpose uh, in writing from that of St. Mark and St. Mark from that of uh, St. Matthew. So they organized the matter differently, Mm. each according to his purpose, and they accentuated things differently, each according to his purpose. Um, So that there's a certain difference uh, and a certain, uh, you know, where one might be very general about uh, a description, the other one might be very detailed. St. Mark is big on details because uh, he was the disciple of St. Peter, who obviously was very, very close to our Lord in all things. Mm. And so he, he got these little details from St. Peter. Uh, and uh, so um, uh, that, that's the reason for the slight difference is that, and you could, again, you know, you could say much more about it and give more examples and everything, but uh, the, the, uh, that, that's the reason for the slight difference is the differences in organization and in style. Uh, St. Matthew is writing in Aramaic and he's translated into Greek. We don't have the original Aramaic. Uh, St. Mark is writing in Greek, but you can tell that it is not his native language. So he has, uh, uh, his, his style is a little, I don't know, I wouldn't say the word crude, but it's not polished. Mm. St. Luke, on the other hand, you can tell is quite well educated and he's writing in a polished Greek. Although the Gospels are written in a much simpler way than his Acts of the Apostles. Uh, there, there is a certain, uh, something about the, the Gospels, the, the simplicity of, of the style of the Gospels that is, is uh, just a little different from his style from, uh, that is found in the Acts of the Apostles. You have little differences because of uh, style and purpose of the of the writer. 
Well, that uh, wraps up this episode, my lord, and and essentially the mini-series on uh, Revelation. We've uh, covered the final proof that the Gospels are genuine, trustworthy, and complete. So thank you, my lord, for your val- valuable time in being with us on this episode. Um, is there anything else you would like to add in summary before we close out our show? No, no just that, that if somebody is interested in the Catholic faith genuinely and you know he has these questions about the gospel which are uh, gospels which are legitimate that he should do the research we, we've talked about all of these things in a general way today but there are much more uh, many more books uh, that could be consulted that go into these questions much more deeply and that he should familiarize himself with those things because he has an obligation to seek the truth. Mm. Uh, if you, if those who are of the truth hear my voice, you have to be of the truth. You have to have a love of the truth in order to become attached to supernatural truth. You have to have at least a, a, a love of natural truth. You have to want to know what is true and profess what is true. You want to... You want to desire to belong to the, the true religion. Uh, and that that's a very important thing. If we don't belong to the true religion, we will go to hell mm. if we neglect it of our own fault. And, and uh, so it's important that people familiarize themselves with these questions and, and think about these things. Indeed. Um, I'm very much looking forward to our next episode as we'll commence a new mini-series on the subject of the Gospels. Our, our blessed Lord, um, I'm calling it our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, Prophet, Messiah, and True God, which really follows the the, the logic of um, of the first uh, few chapters on that. Um, mm-hmm. I hope that name inspires some interest and anticipation from our listeners moving forward. Um, how's life at Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Florida, my Lord? I know you always say that it's uneventful and that's the way it should be, but I hear you're getting packed to the rafters with seminary candidates for the next intake. Yes, we have. Uh, we'll have a full house uh, next year, and you know, again, our capacity is only twelve. So right. it's not. I wouldn't say to give people the idea that you know we can take a hundred people, hundred <laughs> seminarians. But uh, for us, it's a lot. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, and we're happy to see that many. And uh, uh, we'll have six new ones, and um, uh, among them, four will be uh, Americans. Uh, and then there's one Filipino who lives in Canada okay. and one Belgian. Wow. And uh, so uh, yeah, we're, we're, that's good progress for us. Uh, I think that we will eventually have to build a, an extension on the seminary, uh, but that will be a very expensive undertaking. Mm. Um, so we'll see how we do. The, the, the problem is that if they persevere, which we hope they do, mm. uh, they're here for seven years. Wow. So once they move in, <laughs> they, they're taking up space for a long time. They, you know, they have a long lease, so to speak. Mm. And so we, you know, if we keep up this pace of receiving new ones, uh, we will be out of space very quickly. Uh, so uh, now again, in the first year, we usually see about a 50% attrition. So of those six, we'll probably keep three. Right. Uh, but as you can see, that means that we can only take three new ones the next, next year, year, and of those three, one or two will leave. 
See, and, and so forth until there's nothing left. Yeah. So any uh, benevolent listeners out there um, who are fairly well-to-do, his lordship would like a cheque for just a few million to get started with the extension to the seminary. <laughs> I think it would cost about $1.5 million, right. actually. It wouldn't have to be as big as this building. It would just be rooms and, you know, it would not be as elaborate as this building. Uh, but... Uh, I do see the need down the line, especially as we expand into other areas. We have, uh, you know, priests being ordained, and and as you know, I fly around to Europe, and yeah. uh, people get to know what we're doing. Uh, it's, um, it, you know, it, it'll attract more seminarians, and also as long as Bergoglio's there, <laughs> it's waking a lot of people up. Absolutely. Uh, you know, he's our best friend. <laughs> it's. <laughs> In an obscure uh, kind it, of way, yes. You know, it, it, well, it, he, he's driving more people toward us. Uh, they just cannot put it together in their minds anymore that the Novus Ordo was Catholic. And, and when we say come in and say that this is a, a new religion that has been foisted upon our Catholic institutions and it's something that ought to be rejected entirely, yeah. that rings true for a lot of people. Absolutely. And a lot of people have come around to that who previously rejected it. Yes. Uh, you also so I think that's a factor too. Yeah, indeed it is. Uh, the, the, the growth of, um, of your apostolate and, uh, and the apostolate of, of the priests, the traditional priests in America is, is growing, so that's also going to place demand on, on the seminary. You also said last time that the seminary got permission from the county to have a cemetery. Uh, that got me thinking. I don't suppose you would need to do anything except... Fence it off, put up a sign maybe, and wait for the first tenant? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's much more complicated than that. Okay. No, it all has to be uh, surveyed, and each, uh, each plot has to be numbered and so you know what you're buying, you right. know, if somebody buys. You know, so, no, it, it it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, has to be fenced. Uh, there, there's a number of issues. Zoning changes and, and so forth, yes. Um, yeah, that all has to be approved. And it was just a bit so. tongue in cheek. Uh, I uh, so that's that has that all been approved now? Uh, yes. Well, the, the, we haven't put in the survey yet. Ah, right. Okay. But the use of it has been approved. Right. Okay. Uh, but we're working on the that's survey, great. and uh, so you know that depends on how many clients we get, quote unquote. <laughs> but that will help to uh, fund our expansion of the seminary. Yeah. No, uh, quite a bit. Uh, we will be able to, I think, accept um, something like, for, let me see, I forget, I, can, yeah. I shouldn't say because I can't remember anymore, but uh, quite a few that, you know, if if all the plots were sold would bring in a few million dollars. Yeah, that's, that's good. And um, especially with this propensity uh, nowadays in the, you know, with funeral directors to, you know, push people towards uh, cremation and all that sort of stuff, it's good to be... To have that uh, that option, <laughs> you know, something set aside. Yes, it means that that someone will be praying for you. Mm. That, that seminarians will walk through, and they'll see your grave. And they'll pray for you. We will remember all of the dead who are in this cemetery in our masses. Mm. Uh, you know, if you're placed in a grave where people just forget about you, even your own family, mm. no one kneels at at your grave and says a hail mary for mm. you. Um, you know, and it's sacred ground. It's not you're not in with Protestants and divorced and remarried yeah. and, and all sorts of other things. It's sacred ground. 
uh, and uh, you know it's it's where you should be. And, and the whole thing is is to re be remembered in order that people pray for you. Mm. That's important. That's, uh, well, once again, my Lord, thank you for your time, and we'll talk to you again soon as we continue this series. Uh, may God bless you. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. If you have any questions about anything you've heard on today's episode, please email questions at truerestoration.org. We want to remind you that Apologetics is a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to copyright at truerestoration.org. All of us here at member-supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful and beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a mass, a rosary or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the restoration, I'm Phil Stone. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.